Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Cornell Brooks, who is a professor and director of the MWTC at Harvard University and former president of the NAACP. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and thank you for tuning in today. Welcome. If you're a first-time listener, it's a pleasure having you join us. If you're a long-time listener, thank you for your continued support. It means so much. I hope this conversation today adds a bit more depth and breath into your faith walk. I speak with Cornell Brooks, who is a professor and director of the MW. TC, which is a William Monroe Trotter Collaborator for Social Justice at Harvard University. He's a former president of the NAACP. He's an attorney, minister, activist, husband, and dad based in Cambridge, Boston, Massachusetts. We dig a bit more into his story growing up in the South and entering into a time uh, of turmoil at the NAACP um, with some, some big events um, in Ferguson and also in Flint, Michigan, and how he was able to be so successful in, in these different places, increasing millennial membership, how he was able to engage this population, and also able to, to, to share and to project a message uh, for, for social justice for people that might not have been di directly affected. He gives some tips and advice if you're looking to get involved or just know that this is part of the message that, that of the gospel that you're uh, involved in right now um, and are looking to incorporate it into your church congregation um, or take part in, in, any, in any which way. We look into the WMTC and then he shares some shares some advice at the end but he he instills a lot of wisdom throughout the podcast. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it on over to my conversation with Cornell Brooks. Cornell, thanks so much for joining today. It's good to be here. Really great to be here, Tom. My pleasure. So where I want to uh, kick off and get things started is mm -hmm. actually by going going back a bit. Um, into your into your, your backstory, sure. Hearing a bit more about your faith background and what times were like for you as a child. Sure, sure, sure. So in terms of my faith background, um, I grew up in the Low Country of South Carolina, uh, between Charleston and Myrtle Beach, in a little town called uh, Georgetown. Um, that part of the country is uh, rich in history. Uh, it is the uh, home of uh, some of the relatives of the former First Lady, Michelle Obama. Uh, she um, visited Georgetown uh, in the summers, and uh, her folks, or I should say some of her people, are from uh, Georgetown. Uh, it is also near the place where Reform, reform Judaism uh, came to this country, namely Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, it is also the crossroads of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. There are more AME churches in the state of South Carolina than any um, state in the country. And so I grew up uh, in a family that uh, was comprised of uh, Baptist ministers on my father's side of the family, uh, Methodist ministers on my mother's side of the family, and because of the uh, influence of my grandmother, uh, I became a fourth generation uh, minister in the AME church. Now having said that, um, I 
really grew up with the aspiration of being a civil rights lawyer. And for a period of time, I really thought to myself, I would much rather be anything but a minister. So uh, a classic uh, t ministerial tale, uh, namely, I rebelled against ministry. I rebelled against the notion of being a minister. Uh, ministry seemed to be uh, anti-intellectual, uh, regressive, um, stodgy, old-fashioned. Uh, it represented to me at, at that age uh, vocational obsolescence. And so I really just rebelled against that notion. Uh, but went to college, and I heard a speaker who posed three questions that really changed my life. Uh, the speaker asked, how many people in this audience of two, three hundred students, how many of you believe in God? Uh, this being the South, the Bible Belt, everyone in the audience raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you read the Bible in its entirety? No one raised their hand. Second question, how many of you believe that Martin Luther King was a great man. Everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you have read all of his books? No one. Last question, how many of you believe America is, in the main, a good country? Everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you have read the Constitution in its entirety? His point was, before you claim to believe or disbelieve anything, you should be well read. And so that motivated me, inspired me, to read the Constitution in its entirety, the works of Martin Luther King in their entirety, and the Bible in its entirety. And as a consequence of that, that inspired me to both pursue law and ministry, to be a civil rights lawyer as well as a social justice minister. So uh, that's how I came to uh, the uh, unceremonious and disreputable work that I do now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I know a lot of your work uh, right now uh, is really at the, the intersection of social justice, mm -hmm. um, activism. And when you look biblically, um, I, I think a lot of Christians mm -hmm. aren't familiar with the, the books of the prophetic, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it, through your, your theological studies and mm -hmm. endeavors, um, that was a central, central point for you. Mm -hmm. um, at what moment did you, did you realize that these, that these books uh, were really grabbing a hold uh, of mm -hmm. what you were, you were called and kind of led to do, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of how that transpired. Sure, sure. So, uh, as, I, as, as I mentioned, after resolving to read the Bible in its entirety, the Constitution and all of the works of Dr. King, when I began to read Dr. King's books, novels, I should say not, or rather essays and sermons, um, I began to read the sources he cited. So Reinhold Niebuhr, Walter uh, Rauschenbusch, uh, Paul Tillich, uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi. And as I began to read theologians and social ethicists, it underscored and affirmed the biblical stories that I grew up with. And so, in other words, reading the Exodus story, um, but also reading the book of Isaiah. Uh, understanding that when Jesus quotes the words of Isaiah to inspire and inaugurate, if you will, to morally frame, uh, biblically frame his ministry, it spoke to me in terms of for me to say the Lord has called me to preach good news to the poor, uh, to set 
uh, at liberty those who are captive, um, to be a liberating agent for uh, our people broadly and diversely and universally uh, defined. Uh, that story, as I say, that, that prophetic tradition came alive, particularly when read in the light of the history of my own family. So in other words, um, when you come from a family of four generations of ministers, uh, many of whom were engaged in social justice work. For example, uh, back in the 1940s, my grandfather, Reverend James Edmund Prelo, uh, was a minister in the low country of South Carolina, uh, was a leader in the local branch of the NAACP at a time when the, the Klan had as much uh, influence uh, over people's lives as the police department or the sheriff department. And in the 1940s, Thurgood Marshall won this case called Smith versus Allwright. And in that case, the Supreme Court basically said uh, that the all-white Southern Democratic primary was unconstitutional. Well, what that meant was that the Democratic Party of the Deep South, the Dixiecrat Party, could not declare the Democratic Party to be a private club for which you were ineligible unless you were white. And in the all-Democratic South, in the all-Dixiecrat South, if you couldn't participate in the Democratic primary when all the office holders were Democrat, you couldn't participate in the Democratic process, the American electoral process. So when Thurgood Marshall argues this case in the Supreme Court and wins, that opened the door for African Americans in South Carolina and Texas and other places in the Deep South to run for office. So my grandfather gets it into his head to run for Congress in the 1940s in the 6th Congressional District of South Carolina. Well, he didn't run because a Gallup poll told him he could win, or Fox News told him he could win, or CNN told him he could win. He ran because he thought that his ministry and his call to social justice should be manifested not only in church, but also um, at the uh, ballot box. Uh, in the in the field and the realm of social justice. So long story made, story made short, when you grow up hearing these kinds of stories, when you read the book of Isaiah, it, it is not ancient, ancient and obsolete commentary on the biblical times of years gone by. It is instruction, inspiration, guidance, direction, uh, commands, if you will, for present social justice uh, ministry and activity. So, um, you know, the book of Isaiah was the, I, I think, the, the um, book I wrote, uh, some of my, I think, my major systematic theology paper on. Uh, it consumed much of my moral imagination uh, when mm -hmm. I was in seminary. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And, and later on, you, you mentioned um, working with law and with theology, yeah. and then you uh, ended up making that a profession uh, mm -hmm. working at the NAACP um, mm -hmm. and had among many of your successes mm -hmm. um, were able to to draw a large millennial membership mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in a in a really hot time in the United yeah. States too yeah. with Flint and with Ferguson uh, yeah. just a few that I yeah. um, off the top of my head namely mm -hmm. um, what was so uh, what was so attractive for the work that you were doing and mm -hmm. um, kind of and then you know tying it back to theology discerning the, the the living work of the prophets in that period. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's such a great question. So if you can imagine, uh, I went to work at the NAACP uh, in the summer of 2014. 
Um, two weeks after I began my job there, hadn't unpacked my suitcases, un unpacked my office furniture. Uh, Eric Garner uh, was killed in Staten Island. A few weeks later, Ferguson blew up. Uh, police shooting after police shooting. Uh, Alton Sterling, Philando Castillo, Walter um, Scott, Eric Garner, as I mentioned, um, uh, Sandra Bland. This unrelenting parade of human tragedy at the hands of uh, bad and unjust policing. Then we had all the voter suppression cases, Texas, North Carolina, Michigan. Uh, in addition to that, we then have a new president and a corresponding, correlative rise in hate crime all across the country. We had people show up with AK-47s and um, Glocks, Confederate flags and white nationalist regalia at the, the office of the Houston NAACP. Uh, we had death threats uh, on the regular. I had death threats on, on the regular. Uh, we had uh, uh, bomb threats at our headquarters. And so coming into this um, tragic change, uh, intensification, exacerbation of, of racial animus uh, in, this, in this country, one of the things that I, I came to appreciate was the courage of rank-and-file people in this country willing to engage in prophetic ministry in terms of social justice, in the churches, in the synagogues. So, for example, when we, when we, when we did a march from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C., a thousand and two, three miles over the course of 40 days, we had Baptists, Methodists, uh, Episcopalians, uh, Jews, we had one out of every 10 Reformed rabbis in the country march. But we also had many, many, many young people. And what I noticed was the more you demonstrated your beliefs with your feet, with your bodies, with your minds, with your hearts, the more people joined in the NAACP. So it's one thing to issue a press release. It's one thing to issue a statement. It's another thing to march 134 miles in Ferguson, demanding for uh, reform in terms of policing, where we had young people who literally walked through a parade of hate, people calling us the N-word, uh, calling white people uh, N-lovers, uh, having people wave uh, Confederate flags in our faces, uh, displaying on the sidewalks uh, malt liquor bottles, watermelons, and um, um, uh, malt liquor. A really, really uh, tough time. But the thing I found, it's one thing to say to millennials, uh, you should do as well as uh, your forebears did. You should do as your grandparents did. You should do as your parents do. It's another thing to do with them. So in other words, everybody can talk a good talk. Everyone can preach a good sermon. It's another thing to show up and do the work. Model your ministry, don't talk your ministry. Uh, instead of merely preaching your ministry, practice your ministry. So when we did the march from Selma to D.C., we didn't stay at the Radisson, didn't stay at the Hilton, didn't stay at the Holiday Inn. We slept in church basements uh, in sleeping bags. Uh, when we um, did that march from the home of Michael Brown to the home of Governor Jay Nixon, 134 miles in the middle of a Missouri winter, ice storms, um, uh, 
uh, a threatened uh, Klan ambush, a real ambush. We had people who literally lost their toenails because the weather was cold. We didn't realize that you should wear uh, sneakers instead of uh, winter boots. Um, I had one of my colleagues literally lose all the toenails on one foot. I counted myself lucky because I only lost one. So my point being here is that um, there's so many uh, much maligned millennials in this country who are willing to step up and do the work. When have we seen the unprecedented, the generationally unprecedented activism that we've seen in this generation? Women's March, Climate March, the March for Our Lives, uh, marches for black lives, um, marches against xenophobia, uh, Islamophobia, homophobia. You know, so whenever I hear these like hand-wringing uh, pessimists crying about how, you know, uh, how good things were and how bad things are and how uh, young people are not what we once were, I'm wondering what history they're talking about because I don't see it. Uh, and I've been in places with people. I mean, for example, when Laquan McDonald was killed in Chicago, Stephen Green, uh, the youth min then youth minister, uh, I should say youth director of the NAACP, he organized not a group of lawyers, not a group of architects, not a group of engineers, but a group of not even ministers, but seminarians. All of us were arrested in front of the uh, city hall uh, after Laquan McDonald was, mm -hmm. was locked up. These folks had to write a letter to their dean explaining why they weren't in class and why they were being locked up and why their faces were on the front page of the uh, leading Chicago newspaper. That's prophetic ministry. And I believe that's why during that time at the, at the NAACP, I was just so um, heartened to see so many people join. Um, and then in the years following, I know one example, uh, mm. in particular just the, the campaign that ra rallied around Bernie Sanders as one candidate. It was a very mm. grassroots. Yeah. People were very, uh, there's really a, an a, like a personal attachment mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to, as you mentioned, I think the beliefs and the, the values that were being put forth. Mm -hmm. um, so when you think about the, the getting strength in numbers, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm sure there's, uh, in, in, in min with your with your background um, hmm. as a minister, there's concerns about you know ethics and morality as you do this work. What are some of the and obviously as a professor now at the mm -hmm. uh, at the Kennedy School, mm -hmm. what are some of the biggest questions that that you're asking that you're encouraging students to ask mm. um, that are that have decided that yes the um, the walk is worth it, That's but right. how do I go about doing the mm. walk? Well, the, the kinds of questions I ask uh, are really um, inspired and, and animated by uh, my work as a civil rights lawyer and a minister. So there's a tension, if you will, between um, theological aspiration and, and pul public policy and legal and social application, uh, between um, the ideal and the real. And so I challenge students to be uncompromising uh, in terms of principle, uncompromising in terms of their theological and social justice aspirations, but to be practical, to be focused, to be um, um, mindful of policy and law. So for example, the greatest civil rights statute on the books for many years was the Voting Rights Act, in, enacted in 19, 
um, 65. That came at the cost of blood shed on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That was sacrificial blood. It was almost sacramental blood. And the blood was shed by people who had a deep and abiding faith in our God and prophetic ministry. But once the blood was shed, as the sermons were being preached, as people were being inspired, as people were leaving um, the churches to go into the streets or synagogues to go into the, into the streets, Dr. King and his uh, lieutenants, uh, Nicholas Katten, uh, Katzenbach, the uh, U.S. Attorney General, were, along with legislators, were negotiating and crafting and compromising and creating real reform. My challenge today is for those involved in ministry to not sell yourself short. So in other words, the great God who called you into ministry is the same God who can call you into a church, into a synagogue, into a mosque, into a temple, but also into the halls of Congress, into the halls of a state legislature. The same person who allowed you, enabled you, to study systematic theology and, and Christology and soteriology and moral philosophy is the same God that can enable you to understand the intricacies of gun policy, uh, the intricacies of, of policing. Now, we don't all have to be policy experts or lawyers or, um, uh, or um, um, you know, scholars of, of, of political science, but we can all be good students, if you will, of social justice. And I've seen it uh, in, 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 in communities all across the country. Who are the people that people trust most in a crisis? Frequently, the clergy. They're the conveners. They're the ones that bring people to the table. But one of the things that I would challenge many of my uh, brothers and sisters to, to be mindful of is your ability to bring people together but having brought them together to give them direction. And to be very clear about not only the prophetic vision, but the practical plan. And so I just strongly encourage um, seminarians and clergy to um, study uh, the craft of, of, of leadership and governing. And so that's mm -hmm. partly what I do uh, here at the Kennedy School, uh, teach leadership, um, but also the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice, which is a civil rights uh, institute that I lead here, which endeavors to bring clergy together with lawyers, with policy folks, with people in government and leadership to bring about reform at the community level. And uh, I, just, I just think it's a, a, just so important. And so uh, just in terms of advice, I would say, you know, the great and grand words of the prophetic tradition a true for you in the pulpit, but also true for you in the streets, and true for you in the state legislature, and that never, ever underestimate how powerful you are. Never underestimate that. And more importantly, don't underestimate, underestimate how powerful uh, the God is who called you into ministry. Mm -hmm. So for, for folks that are... Um that, that want to take a nec the, the next step in their mm -hmm. poten potentially a if they're a church leader or mm -hmm. involved in their church in their church um, or whatever that looks like in their mm -hmm. life but 
struggling to find connection with the mm. issues as they don't particularly might not they, they might not experience them themselves mm-hmm. or maybe they'll ne- they'll never experience them themselves mm-hmm. um, how are these people able to to get to, to find that uh, mm-hmm. attraction to the the very pertinent issues mm-hmm. um, and be willing to go for the for the long haul like you know, and, and be willing to have toenails fallen off in, in the walk, and really just mm-hmm. kind of be in it for the for the mm-hmm. for the entire way through. So here's one thing I'm, I'm uh, I try to share with people who are called to to uh, religious leadership. You know, Moses was called in terms of revelation. Mount Sinai, but he was called circumstantially and historically uh, in Egypt and um, as a witness to those of his brothers, uh, witness to those of his brothers and sisters uh, who were enslaved. When you serve a local congregation, people will come to you with what may seem may seem as ministry problems at first glance, but what are in fact social justice challenges. Dr. King was a pastor. He was not a expert in public accommodations law. He was not an expert uh, in interstate transportation. Not an expert in the intricacies of uh, Brown versus Board of Education or Plessy versus uh, Ferguson. He was a pastor, and so as a pastor in the local community, when he saw a fellow member of the community uh, locked up, arrested for refusing to um, obey segregation laws, he responded out of a pastoral and prophetic commitment to social justice, which led him down the road of policy. Mm -hmm. And so what I say to seminarians and, 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 and clergy is that the great social justice challenges of our time are resident in the local congregation. And if not in the local congregation, certainly in the broader community. And so all you need to do is listen to your people. I mean, when we think about it, um, look at the great work of Tracy Blackman in Ferguson, right? Uh, Michael Brown was killed in the street. Young people took their mobile devices and uh, literally sent the image of his lifeless body around the world, so much so it put Michael Brown's name on Barack Obama's lips when he went to Geneva, Mm -hmm. Switzerland. And Tracy Blackman, who was a local clergywoman, uh, a minister, responded to young people who were upset by this injustice. And her ministry in the local church, her ministry of social justice uh, up until that point, certainly expanded. We see that all across the country. We see clergy uh, who are standing in the gap with respect to immigration rights, with respect to discrimination against people in the LGBTQ community. Uh, They're not coming at it uh, like the talking heads on CNN or MSNBC. They're coming coming at these social justice challenges out of a pastoral love. And my, my argument is let your pastoral love, prophetic commitment, 
lead to some modicum of policy expertise, familiarity, and comfort. That's all. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that can be through bringing in these different folks? Bring it, yeah. yeah. For example, when you have a, a local social justice issue, bring in the experts in your community. Bring in, you know, bring together lawyers, uh, mm-hmm. teachers, um, university uh, professors. Build your team. For example, no pastor would start a ministry to feed the hungry or clothe the naked by themselves. At some point or another, when you put together a soup kitchen, you have to have cooks. You have to have people wash the, the, the pots and the pans. You have to have people to serve the food. When we um, um, provide clothes to those who uh, are literally naked or cold during the uh, winter months or uh, um, hot during the summer months. We collect clothes from those who have clothes. We work with, uh, with local uh, charitable organizations. We organize. We build teams. How is it when it comes to social justice, so often we don't build those same kinds of teams? And I, I, I go back to the fact that the best leaders I know, who are the, the most sophisticated, the most most sophisticated in terms of human psychology, group dynamics, sociology, are pastors, the clergy. Right? I, I, I've had governors who defer to clergy because they look around the room and they notice the degree to which people defer to those who have taken. Uh, an ordination vow. But more, to, more importantly, religious people can be counted on to serve whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent. They can be counted on to serve whether or not the poll numbers are up or down. We feed people, we clothe people, we serve people whether we like them or not because we're commanded to love them. And so as a consequence, we have a reservoir of trust that politicians don't ha- often have, seldom have. We have to, you know, use that um, to, you know, take on some of the toughest challenges of our time, which are literally at your doorstep. Yeah, if you if you, you, know, you have your eyes open, your ears open, you listen to people, uh, you care about people, they will teach you all you need to know about the social justice challenges, literally at your doorstep. Uh, and you know, occasionally we have. Um, we have some clergy who will say we, these kinds of problems, don't, you know, uh, they don't afflict my congregation. Well, I, I would say sometimes our congregations are not nearly as uh, homogeneous as we might imagine, uh, and our congregations are not as small as we assume, meaning there are people who are different, who live in a different zip code, um, who um, maybe... Uh, live in a different socioeconomic strata than the folks you normally see on, on Sunday uh, or Wednesday evening. But the fact of the matter is, those are your people. Those are your people. Mm-hmm. Um, just just to conclude and, and to wrap up, um, mm-hmm. just want to hear just a, a word of encouragement, word of advice for listeners, mm-hmm. um, and then where folks can, can find you in the work that you do uh, if they want to follow along, get involved sure, in all of sure. that. Sure. So just by word of encouragement, this moral moment in, in America is more than a Twitter age uh, civil rights mo- movement. It is more than a movement 
uh, to combat gun violence or for immigrant rights or uh, to control and contain and hopefully reverse uh, climate change. This is really a moment of moral awakening and is a moment in which the, our communities of faith have an opportunity to reach people we've never reached, touch people we've never touched, to go to places we've never been. And so where you read all these uh, sociological descriptions of, of the decline and obsolescence of mainstream uh, Christianity, that many of our churches and even our synagogues are declining in membership. Well, let's note this. The many millions of Americans all across the country who've participated in marches and demonstrations for the first time, many of them inspired by the religious teachings that they heard not in church, but they heard the echo in the streets. We have an opportunity to reach them. We have an opportunity to reach an entire generation of young people by speaking to the concerns that they have that reflect the concerns of the prophetic tradition. And so this is literally a moment to grow and expand our ministries, um, to uh, reach people through um, sermons that echo not only from, from pulpits, but sermons and essays and speeches and ministry that echo and reverberate from podcasts, right? This podcast is a ministry moment, an opportunity. And so I just really want to encourage people that we can hear God's call in our time. You know, let's not let's not look over our shoulder at the great old, you know, the great uh, and good old days of the past. Let's look at the present social justice challenges of our moment and see this is really a once in a lifetime uh, ministry moment. And so the the, you know, the Y.T. Walkers, the Martin Luther Kings, the Rosa Parks, the Pauli Murrays uh, of our time are walking around now. Some of them haven't even been ordained yet. Some of them are on their way uh, to seminary. Some of them may not ever be ordained, but this is their ministry moment. And so I, I would just simply say, in some ways, we can count ourselves challenged. We can count ourselves fortunate. We can count ourselves blessed that this is a moment where if we do the work, no one will ever question the relevance of our ministry. And in terms of just being in touch, I um, um, have been blessed to uh, you know, serve in, in senior positions of, of civil rights leadership. And now I'm in a place where um, I'm having the opportunity to combine uh, law, policy, uh, ministry, and teaching. Uh, as a member of the senior faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School and the director of the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice, which is quite simply like a, uh, what I would call a, like a public policy uh, clinic for the country. In the same way that you have legal clinics that serve the poor, uh, this is a public policy clinic that helps connect uh, activists and advocates in the streets with academics, lawyers, policy folks in the academy to give people in communities tools that they might not have. And so uh, what I'm endeavoring to do here is really uh, with many colleagues, with many uh, advocates, is to create a uh, new model for reform, a new tool. So in other words, 100 years ago, the NAACP really uh, created a new form of advocacy. 
inspired by some of our ancestors and forebears, I'd like to do the same here. So just in terms of staying in touch, I'd tell people uh, just to reach out to me at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, my email, phone number, and everything is on our webpage. And um, I'd love to, to speak, preach, um, share uh, in local congregations uh, to get the word out about what we're doing and more importantly, to be of service. Because here's what I sense. There are a lot of pastors out there who are confronting social justice challenges, but they don't have all the tools. They've got the call, may even have the people, but they don't have all the tools. Uh, we have a tool here, and we'd like mm -hmm. to be used. So just reach out to me at the, at the Harvard Kennedy School. Great. Cornell, it's been a pleasure having you on the Guys Like Us podcast today, hearing no, more about your journey. You. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. No, thanks, Tyler.